Nice to be back with you, Matthew. It's been a, an interesting 2020 start to the 2024 season. It's hard to believe that in just a few weeks, the the price of uranium uh, on the back of you know increasing that 89 percent last year is up another you know 14, 15 dollars a pound. And uh, I'm very happy to share with you that uh, Sprott, the Sprott Fizzle Uranium Trust, is uh, I think around 6.7 billion. Dollars and Sprott as an entity overall is managing about nine billion U.S. dollars in uranium-related investments, which I think is probably the largest in the world. So it's worked out tremendously well for our clients. Uh, just finished a road trip in Europe, and people are, have been, um, you know, have been obviously very happy with the performance, uh, particularly the last six months as we've kind of finally broken through and, and hit. Uh, you know, meaningful new price points. Absolutely, it's been a hundred mile an hour start to the to the year for sure, and a hundred dollar uh, spot price as well, um, which has got people excited. That you you've been on roadshow, you are seeing the great and the good in terms of banks, brokers, and investors. What do they What do they want to know from you? Yeah, I would say it really started to ramp up in September when we broke sixty bucks, which was. Kind of touching that that price that we briefly touched after the the war broke out in Ukraine, um, and there's just kind of growing, I think, interest in this technology after you know being ignored for for a very long time. I, look, it's a it's it's still a very momentum driven market, you know, and people look for price signals, and the spot price breaking to sixty and to seventy and to seventy two, and you might say, well, what's the significance of seventy two? Well, 72 was where we were right before we had the earthquake and tsunami in Japan in 2011. So when we finally breached that number, um, it was another kind of psychological uh, level that we, we were able to get past. And, you know, sure enough, what happened after that was the Kazakhs announced they were going to flex up their production uh, in 2024 and 2025. The price immediately went down $5 a pound. And then people took a step back and reflected on it and said, hmm, What's the probability they can actually do this? And, you know, just in the last two weeks, we just, you know, we we discovered that they've already started to walk back their ability to, to hit those numbers. So, um, but generally, the pricing signals uh, have acted as a beacon. We're getting a lot of inbound interest from institutional investors. I would say in the last uh, two weeks alone, we've probably been in touch with, uh, I haven't done the final tally, but. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 institutional investors that have been on, on either different calls that we've done, group calls that different investment banks have sponsored or roadshows that we, we've done one-on-one. -on -one. So that that's really um, amazing that um, that the you know the, hitting $100 is actually accelerating the amount of interest as opposed to you know you would think value buyers thinking okay. It's over. I've had you know, I've had this big gain. It's time to move on to something new. Right. I think. Well, I think it's a case of what the old saying used to be: no one gets fired for buying IBM. It's like you know, it was it was too cheap. It was too small, and you can get yourself in a lot of trouble by by entering at a kind of contrarian level down there. But the banks are interested now at a hundred bucks, um, but they're gonna need something else. They're gonna need to see sustained price, if not growth, over a sustained. And by that, I mean. Maybe, maybe, maybe reflected in quarters, maybe reflected in years. I don't know. Do you have a view? Yeah, I think you raise a really good point. Um, this isn't kind of a peak kind of blow off cycle event. We think this is basically the price resetting to levels where it was in 2011. You know, if you if you want to think about the most basic inflation adjusted price, 
From here, we need to base higher and we need to stay high at elevated prices for a very long period of time. Because as, as you know, these projects have incredible, incredibly long lead times and very large you know, upfront CapEx requirements. And if you look at the long-term supply trajectory, uh, there's really nothing meaningful coming online for the next five to six years. Yes, a flurry of restarts. It seems like every week there's, there's a new one, which is great. Uh, but they're all kind of ones and twos and three million pound kind of deposits that are going to come online in the next one, two, three years. Those are all going to help. You know, we, we, we like to refer to those as the easy pounds, but we need to get to the hard pounds. The hard pounds are going to need a hundred dollar plus uranium to, to really finance those projects. Um, and they obviously need in part some level of forward contracting. And the good news is, is that a lot of these, uh, up and coming developers, have not sold uh, much production, or in many cases, no production forward. So they're gonna, you know, they're gonna they're gonna be able to capture the the, the value uh, with these higher prices, which is obviously really important to get these projects uh, off the ground. Right. Okay. So we're talking pounds on the ground, and we need them out of the ground. We need, you know, as, as the phrase that's been used this week is, you know, the rubber's got to hit the road. We need we need production, not talk of production. Right. But just before we kind of get into that, I just want to stick with the bankers and the brokers and all other interested parties that you've been talking to. It's They've been out of this market for a long time. The knowledge base is quite low. Um, I'm, I'm kind of interested in to see one, you know, how quickly you think they kind of get up the curve and then what do they do with that data? Why, why, do, they want to, why do they want to know what they need to know from you? What are they going to do with that information? Yeah, well, what we find is that you can have a very sophisticated, successful institutional investor who um, falls into one or two camps, um, never invested in the sector before. So this is kind of ground zero, Uranium 101, how does it fit in the energy system? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Or you could have uh, an, an institutional investor who hasn't invested in the sector since the last cycle. So you're talking 10, 12 years ago in many cases, and they're almost starting off at ground zero. You know, they will, you know, share stories about something happened this, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, but they're kind of getting up, up to speed. And so when you think about that knowledge gap, basic information about the sector, it's not easy to come by. Um, you know, I often joke when, institutional investors will say to me, okay, what's the ticker on Bloomberg to get the uranium price? I'm like, there isn't one unless you subscribe to a service. So it's that simple and basic um, getting over those hurdles. So often what we do is say, look, uh, we will fill in all the gaps, the information gaps for you to help you uh, sell this to your CIO or your investment committee or help you write your memo. We will share information with you. And and that's, you know, that's a process. Um, Obviously, some institutional investors are very nimble. They can move quickly. Those ones have already moved. The next generation of investors are still writing memos and, and, and getting up to speed with the you know fundamental supply, demand. Where do I get the where do I get a pricing source? How do term contracts work? And um, that's what we spend most of our time on. It's it's uh, I do kind of feel like a teacher sometimes, but it's important because nobody is going to make any investment without without having an informed point of view. For sure. But I think the quick and nimble ones are the smaller ones. Is, it, would that be right? Because I think the, the big guys move slowly, but when they deploy, oh boy, does it make a difference? It, it, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've obviously raised several billion dollars of capital over the last two and a half years. And consistently, I would say the commonality with those funds is they've been more nimble. They've done their homework earlier. 
and they've been willing to, you know, look at the value opportunity with a very long-term perspective. None of them were sitting there saying, well, this looks interesting. Let's, let's trade it for five bucks a pound. No, most of them were saying, no, this needs to go up substantially for the industry to basically resuscitate itself. And that's, uh, and that's, I think that's where, where many of them th are, are thinking. I met with one of our large institutions in New York about a month ago. And I, I said to him, how are you feeling about your investment? Because, you know, he, I'm going to guess his average cost is, you know, the equivalent of kind of $25 a pound in uranium. And the price was maybe 85 when I met him. And he said to me, I'm going to make more in the next stage from 85 forward than what I've already made. And I thought that was an incredibly sharp comment about the mindset you need to have in the space. You don't want to get off too early. You don't want to be kind of sheeking out in, in any kind of air pocket or short-term volatility because this sector does have the ability to really go quickly. And I think that's obviously, you know, we've just witnessed that going from 60 to, you know, 106 in, in, in just a few months. Uh, it doesn't take much when you've got a very tight market. And, you know, obviously some of your recent interviews have been talking about that. And I think it's important. What's changed? Everyone knew about the supply deficit five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago. Nothing's changed. If anything, the demand forecast has gone up, but the supply story hasn't changed one bit. So what has changed? I think a lot of it is sentiment, psychology, and acceptance. There is uh, the stigma of investing in uranium or nuclear energy going away. Uh, when we would talk to investors two, two years ago about the category, I mean, the questions we were, we were being asked were so basic in hindsight, but that's where we were in the cycle. You know, um, is this technology safe? What about the accidents that happened? What about the spent fuel? You know, we're well past that. Now they're getting right in the weeds in the fuel cycle, Russia's role, utility contracting cycle. So, you know, guys are, are serious, you know, they're doing work and you know, they, they've got real capital to deploy if they can, you know put all the pieces together and say, hey, it's attractive here. We want to get exposure to this. Right. It, it, like, yeah. And absolutely, I think there are lots of people who violently agree with you that the supply demand story hasn't changed. In fact, it's probably got better because with SMRs, acceptance across m multiple um, geographies, et cetera, and governments, um, it, it, the demand is, is even bigger than it was. And quite frankly, you look at the supply side and go, maybe not, I, I'm not so certain about some of these delivery dates that people are quoting. So it, it's better. But again, when you're talking to these bank guys, if they have been used to investing in metals or the, the mining space before, they might sort of reference things like what's happened in lithium, what's happened in copper, um, you know, what's, what's happened in, in nickel for the last couple of years, where you get these price spikes and these kind of nascent new industrial areas where EV revolution has been driving a, a big narrative, but it hasn't actually been reflected in um, companies' ability to produce, companies' uh, share prices, and availability of the actual underlying commodity, right? When they look at things like that, do they say, well, uranium must be in that basket. It will have a price, uh, it will have a, a price reaction at some point. Or do they truly understand the supply demand fundamentals and say, well, actually, this is a different investment class completely? Yeah, it's a really good question. I got that. I got asked that question from an investor um, in Asia on a call I did this morning. And, you know, what I tried to emphasize to that individual is this is not like the coal market or the oil and gas market where you've got a, you've got a price 
uh, spike and you can get a very near-term supply response. Um, you don't have this here because we basically shut the industry in for the, for the most part. And so, look, we're not saying it's not coming. It will, it, we're, we're, it will come. It is coming. But it's going to be a lot slower than everybody thinks because the permitting process for uranium is is pretty complex, especially in you know tier one mining jurisdictions like Canada. They, they you know, we're very careful about about uh, environmental and, and social issues. A lot of these deposits are in First Nations properties, so there has to be economic sharing of wealth and all those kinds of things that take time to negotiate. So there will be a supply response, um, no doubt about it, but it's going to take longer than I think everybody thinks. I think the news since September that the two largest producers in the world are both having a few growing pains in terms of flexing up production, coupled with uh, utilities calling them up and saying, hey, we need to buy more uranium. Uh, what are the delivery windows looking like? And you're basically told, hmm, we're kind of sold out for the next three or four years. That is a pretty powerful statement that it is not going to be a, a clear shot to uh, very material increase in production uh, in the near term. So look, some utilities, I'm going to say, saw the signals, believed in the signals and acted uh, starting in 2022. Other utilities didn't, did, uh, did not believe the signals they were seeing over and over again. They, they did not think it was sustainable. They maybe perhaps looked at some of these mining companies with very low cost structures and, well, they can say they can produce all this stuff for 50 bucks or 60 bucks. So, you know, surely it's not going to go more than, you know, 70 or 80. Um, you know, the reality is there's a little bit of, of gamemanship going on by both the producers and the utilities. Uh, we think some utilities are, are sufficiently covered in the near term. We think other utilities who have missed the signals or they, they saw the signals, they ignored the signals. Uh, are going to be are, are are in a less a better you know position. I agree with you, and I think the we, we talk about moving from a buyer's market to a seller's market, and the psychology gaps um, that, that 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 appear. And yeah, it's it's it definitely a seller's market. It it it, feel, it feels like at the, at the moment. Um, now, I, I guess the thing that interests me is it's a it's a small sector, uranium sector, and you guys have taken part by by mopping up a, a, lot, a lot of inventory across the market, and you know, goodness knows where it would be if you hadn't, but at the same time, it's a very disjointed market. Not a lot of moving parts, but it's, it's very disjointed. So the, the funds which you may be talking to to invest into, you know, Spot Physical Uranium Trust, um, I hope they do, it's, it's, a, it's a good product. Um, and any of these other kind of, um, I guess, financial products which may come along, like you know, more, more of the uranium ETFs is is good news. It's not good news on the shop floor. It's not good news for the companies needing to find, either get support in terms of share price, get support in terms of actually funding to build stuff, you know, get get support now and at a reasonable cost price, or you're going to see potentially more delays at best or more failures at worst on the development side. And that's going to only affect the supply numbers significantly. And that may sound like a good thing, but I'm not sure it will be long-term because people are going to have to, or governments are going to start factoring in, well, if these guys can get their act together, we're going to need a, a technology alternative. We're going to need to substitute this out for something else. And I'm not sure there is anything else so do you, do you understand what i mean about the sort of the, the kind of disjointed nature of this of the space and perhaps 
it kind of needs pulling together a bit. Yeah, well, look, I think uh, it, 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 it cuts across the entire supply chain. We basically stopped building nuclear uh, power plants for the most part in the West for the last 30 odd years. Yeah, there've been a couple of, there've been a couple of builds completed and a couple are, are still in progress, but we, we've largely let that whole supply chain go. Um, countries like China and South Korea obviously keep building them for themselves and for other countries. But, you know, that supply chain's gone. Um, mining and processing uranium, the, that supply chain is largely gone. And, you know, if you think about the fuel cycle um, and that supply chain, you know, we've still, uh, we're still relying on Russia for, for a couple of steps in that process. And, you know, we're obviously watching that development very carefully. So when I go back and say, look, even though the price has gone up meaningful over the last couple of years, that's nice, but you need to have a very high prices for many years to really rebuild all these supply, these supply chains. And that's why I think institutions, even though the prices is a hundred, are very intrigued right now at looking at the space because there isn't an alternative technology that can produce as much power as this can in, in a reliable fashion. You know, I, I've been getting questions in the last two weeks about, okay, when does demand destruction come in because the fuel is too much? And I'm like, guys, this isn't a natural gas plant where 70% of the fuel costs is the, is the or sorry, 70% of the operating costs is the fuel. This is like five to 10% of the, of the operating costs is the fuel. And you're talking about buying fuel today that won't get spent uh, or won't get consumed and, 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 and accounted for in your reactor and your financial statements for probably five or six years from now. It doesn't matter. You can't really substitute. You can't really thrift. There is an, an incredibly high price point at which it no longer becomes economic. And the reality is electricity prices are are incredibly high right now. And obviously demand is, is going only one way, which is up. So we don't we don't see that scenario play out until, gosh, I don't know, make up a number. The uranium price hits $1,000 a pound. I don't know. I haven't done the math on it, but it, we're nowhere near that kind of scenario. I hear, but it may, it may, it may, price isn't necessarily a reflection of the amount of, amount of supply in the sense that, well, so it is in the sense of scarcity, clearly, but if we can't get it out of the ground and can't process it, we can't enrich it, and we can't get it to these reactors um, quickly enough, because right now, we're, you know, we needed this money five years ago, right? But we're not, and we don't have it yet. You've kind of got the usual funders into a mining operation and not very many of them and they're not very very big compared to the guys that you're talking to in terms of investing in your financial product so up at the up at your end life is good down at the dirty end where people are going to build these things the money is not readily available it's expensive and um, that you know, there's not too many people who actually know how to value or lend into a company that says, "Don't worry, I've done my definitive feasibility study; it'll be fine." So, I'm sure I'm sure I'm wondering where do governments step in and help? Do governments come in in terms of either underwriting or, you know, partly funding these things? Because if you want energy security, as it, say the US does, you got to you got to step up more. So far, most of the IRA, most of the uranium. Money earmarked for uranium has gone way down, way down stream, um, and the guys who get it out of the ground don't seem to be the beneficiaries yet. 
in any meaningful way? Well, I think there's a couple things happening. One, as you, as you talk to some of these emerging producers or, or or companies that are restarting, they're being asked by the utilities to participate in in RFP processes, uh, and that's a good sign because it obviously uh, you need to spread the wealth around. You need to basically support emerging producers, and those emerging producers, if they can sell some of their 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 production forward um, at at fair and reasonable prices, well, that obviously will facilitate raising additional capital to to move the whole project forward. So that's happening. The other thing I would say is that after a period of really lagging the commodity price, we've definitely seen, I think, an inflection point with the miners themselves uh, in a couple of ways. One, the miners are performing a little better, and it's not just one stock anymore. And we're also starting to see more capital coming into the uranium mining stocks. And again, this is a technical you know, uh, area of investment. So a lot of investors just simply say, look, I'm going to buy the whole universe through an ETF. Um, but in our ETFs and some of the competitor ETFs that we follow uh, daily, we've seen more money coming into the uranium mining ETFs over the last six months than we've had in the physical uranium vehicles, even though the uranium mining ETFs are maybe one third of the size of the combined ETFs, uh, mining ETFs. I think that's a healthy sign that we're getting some kind of risk appetite back. I think the other point I would make is with the price being north of $100 a pound, that should disproportionately help the miners more than anybody. Um, this should be able to fund just about any any existing project that wants to resume production. Uh, and it clearly is going to uh, be a, a, a good price to basically get an attractive project finance and built again. Uh, maybe we have a little bit more room to go in some higher cost jurisdictions for sure, but you know we're getting closer and closer. And I think the other good point is that some of these producers have not sold forward, so they're they're really going to benefit as the price continues to to remain elevated. Well, they're, they're nice. There's there's the psychology, but but unfortunately, the, the the as you said earlier, it doesn't kind of amount to a hell of beans, quite frankly. The um, the handful, literally, of advanced development stories who are ready to you know FID ready, they're they're, they're ready to. Um, actually say we will now start building they have not engaged yet it seems with utilities in in, in, in any meaningful way I know we've got you know people like um, global have got three con uh, three term contracts but they're not they're not huge right they're not these are these are not these are not big contracts and I think you've got to say like I hear I hear what you're saying but you hear, here's the thing there's literally a handful of companies who are ready FID ready at the moment I in a position to have com com meaningful conversations with utilities about you know forward contracts, right? But I think a little bit of greed has kind of kicked in here. And I spoke about this with Dustin. It's like they're saying, well, at least 106, real quick. Um, maybe if we just sit around on our hunker down for three months, it might reach 140. No, no point rushing into these things. Um, I don't know if it's a little bit of that or because I, I always think you can factor those things into term contracts. You can, you know, don't necessarily have to have ceilings involved. Maybe you want some bottoms involved and maybe it helps your negotiations if Mark's a little bit more desperate. So things are a bit of great, but it's only a handful. The bulk of development stories, not advanced development stories, development stories or advanced exploration stories, I don't think are seeing the benefit. I think very little accretive movement in share price compared to what's going on with the uh, spot price. 
Now that's because maybe spot price hasn't been doing its thing for that long. But when do you think there's going to be a reaction in the market? Because then most of the people listening to you today, most of the people listening to our uranium coverage will be sort of intrigued why this disconnect between what the the advancing price versus what equities should be doing. It's not, it's not there. Yeah. And I think, and I've talked about this uh, repeatedly over the last couple of years, it's, it's, it's access to these investments. And I'm, I'm maybe going to change my word. It's not access, it's permission to access these investments. By lar- a lot of the larger institutions, they're just not permitted to go down market cap. So it's a real conundrum because, you know, at the end of the day, who's going to finance these these projects and, and you know, and, and loan these companies money and then buy equity if they're not permitted to uh, because of different uh, compliance, you know, self-inflicted constraints. I mean, I had a, a fund last week tell me they, they couldn't, they, 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 they love the whole space, the sector, the thesis, but they're not allowed to buy anything sub 5 billion market cap. Uh, and obviously, you know, that is a very big generalist type investor. Um, and we don't need all of those guys to, to, to join the party, but it is a, it is a real meaningful constraint. The world is, is incredibly focused on size and liquidity right now. And, you know, the sector, as you know, is just, there's so many small companies still trying to get back on their own two feet, um, that we need to somehow figure out how to bridge that gap. If, uh, now look, the good news is there's still lots of, lots of investors that are managing, you know, not hundreds of billions of dollars or trillions of dollars, but obviously are managing tens of billions of dollars that I think were the early adopters and have already positioned themselves in the sector. I am feeling better that, you know, as the commodity price stays higher for longer, that the stocks eventually will will perform better. We're starting to see signs of that. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, it's show me the drums, you know, or show me the path to show me the drums. Um, because if it's not a real project, if it's not economic, if it's too small scale, if it's in a bad jurisdiction, you know, irrespective of whether the price is three hundred dollars a pound, you know, I think there are going to be challenges. Yeah, I've sort of been, as you know, it's been a fascinating um, sort of um, journey for us over the past like, four four years in the space for sure. Um, you know, and I, I think I think that kind of for me, for me, the kind of the, one of the big takeaways is I think there's a you know clearly a looming risk of supply short shortfalls. I mean, e- even more than perhaps is is understood because I'm not a believer that. Everyone's got their their timings right. Um, question for you though: If you look at the the paths that you're buying or a, able to get your hands on, obviously it's it's getting harder out there. Um, it's getting harder also because there's this clear divide right now. You've got Kazakhstan effectively shipping all of what they've got, which isn't contracted, east. You got Russia, China. Um, you know, well, China's definitely mopping up as many pounds from wherever the heck it can. I think Russia's encouraging Kazakhstan maybe to head east as well. It doesn't leave a lot of players in the West again able to maybe deliver against the the, the requirements. I mean, you're out there looking for pounds. Utilities are out there looking for pounds. You've, you, you know, it. Do do you feel that 2024 is the year where there's a parting of ways in terms of that those those supply demand graph lines and um it gets a little bit more desperate and therefore the question to you is how, the price is clearly gonna keep moving up how long does it sustain for how long before it can get fixed because i'm you know as a 
as a sort of industry person, I'm, I just concerned about how do you get this problem fixed? Not necessarily how do you make money. The money's really, really nice for all of us investors, but the utilities need this stuff. It's going to take a while, right? Yeah, look, I mean, what, what we've seen in the market the last six months, um, what's driving it is, is simple. You've had more buyers than we've had in a long time. And, and, and buyers meaning utilities are back in the spot market, uh, probably less so at, at 100, but they were very active. Uh, you know, they've been very active in August, September, October, uh, buying in a spot market when the price was, you know, 50, 60, 70. We've seen producers in the spot market buying because they've had to draw down their inventories as, as customers have flexed uh, on, on legacy contracts. And obviously they're signing new contracts. We think enrichers are in the market having to top up inventories. And then you've got financial players like ourselves and other hedge funds buying. So the range of buyers has really broadened in the last few months. And, in, and when you put all of those people competing for pounds in the market at the same time, uh, I think that's what ultimately has propelled the price 40 odd dollars a pound. You know, it's impossible to know when where, where people get covered and, and, and where, uh, where, the, where they kind of level off here. But you know, look, producers, uh, their first first goal is deliver against the contract. So first and foremost, you need to make sure you remain a reliable producer, you deliver on time. I'm sure there are conversations going on right now saying, hey, uh, Mr. Utility, would it be okay if we delayed delivery six months or 12 months? Do you really need the stuff? I'm sure there are some of those calls going on right now. Do you care where you get your pounds? Um, yes, we absolutely care. Um, we want our pounds to be in the spot market. I want near-term delivery because I don't want to essentially pre-fund future production, which may not happen, or I don't want to get caught with logistical or shipping or sanctions or insurance-related issues around moving uranium around the world. And right now, that there are heightened risks around all that stuff. Um, We've we've purchased uranium from 35 different counterparties. I love having that that breath. Uh, we keep adding new counterparties in terms of first trades. So um, yeah, we absolutely care about about where we we buy it from, and we obviously want to make sure we're doing business with with parties that 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 uh, we think are going to deliver. Do you think do you expect to see more financial products coming into market? And yeah, and will it be to the detriment? Because obviously, there's the thing. Obviously, before COVID came along, ETFs they're killing gold juniors, right? ETFs are killing gold juniors because people are not investing directly, and the and the ETFs are deciding who wins and who gets to play the game. Do you think we're going to see that play out in uranium if it, if it comes up interested financial structuring groups? Yeah, well, we've obviously seen a number of of uranium mining related ETFs pop up around the globe in the last year or so. We launched, obviously, the, the world's first junior uranium mining ETF. Again, most people do not want to do the technical work and just want a whole basket. So these products have been very popular. We launched another fund in Europe for the European and UK audiences. Um, other players um, have launched products in Europe, Australia, Canada. So you know when a theme becomes more interesting, um, and the and the investment thesis becomes compelling. Uh, the financial industry does a very good job of of, of providing uh, product to people on the physical commodity side. You know, it's still kind of a a, a two two product race. Um, there obviously has been a lot of chatter about um, products coming in the market for the greater part of two years. It's interesting when I first got asked this question, 
well, you know, you guys have had all this early success with Sput. Surely there's going to be a proliferation of products that, you know, try to copycat you. And my immediate response was, I don't think so. And, 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 and I said that because the challenges of trying to build and scale a product in a very complex commodity like, like uranium are real. And if you fast forward two years, um, what other offering has been able to come to market in, in a meaningful way? We don't know of any. So yes, there are, there are a bunch of people trying to get out of the starting blocks, but uh, it's been challenging. And you know, how are you going to scale? Scale and liquidity are so important for institutional investors. You know, going back to that that the example I, I share with you around, hey, we can't touch anything sub five billion. So you know, you think about it. You know, that means that somebody even a year ago wouldn't have been able to invest in spot because it didn't it didn't tick the box. You know. So liquidity and size are so important, which is why we've been so focused on growing our vehicle so that more and more institutions could participate. Yeah, I mean, do you, obviously you've, you've set up ETFs. I mean, do you think ETFs are good for mining? And if you, if you're clearly going to say yes, but, um, but tell me, tell me why, tell me why it's good for the companies that you that meet your criteria and indeed, you know, how do you set that criteria and why do you set that criteria for that? Sure. So every ETF follows uh, a well-defined index index that has a methodology which prescribes exactly the different market cap, minimums, maximums, liquidity, thresholds, et cetera, et cetera, geography, whatever. You I mean they're basically customized depending on the audience. I think the pros are that you give access to a thematic or a sector that is very technical and that most people have no interest or competence in terms of like diving into very complex, you know, early stage companies. The negative is sometimes those ETFs can become so big relative to the market caps of the companies that the ETFs are kind of wagging the dog around. And we've seen that sometimes when funds become too big They've had to change their index methodologies. They've uh, obviously index rebalancings or reconstitution sometimes can create short-term disruptions with individual companies. And obviously that that ripple effect can be more meaningful as you go down market cap and with lower liquidity. So I totally acknowledge all that. And then the other thing I would acknowledge is that there's a lot of index arbitrage players out there. So these are professional trading desks that only think about how indexes and ETFs may change on their next regularly scheduled rebalance, and they try to front run those trades. They will either trade ahead of them, they will short names, and, and sometimes they win and sometimes they lose because it's a bit of a guessing game as well. So it does, I would say, because I know, you know, I, you know, Sprott is also a manager of active strategies, and I know from over the years our, our, our managers in the, in the gold and silver space are cursing and pulling their hair out because some company they own got punted out of the index and there was, a, you know, very heavy selling. Um, you know, so those are some of the negatives. But the flip side is they're very liquid, they're very transparent, they're low cost, they're very tax efficient, uh, and they really kind of democratize investing for for the small guy. And that's why ETFs have been, you know, they're worth $11 trillion globally right now. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of ETFs for, for, for most retail. As you say, perhaps I've got the... The, the, the time or, or the experience or, you know, and quite frankly, the inclination. I mean, why should you to do all that heavy lifting um, and leave it, leave it to you guys? But I just wonder what it does to the ability of the sector to fund exploration because it's like, 
you know that that money's got to come from somewhere. And that's obviously much much higher risk and ETFs aren't going to dive in there. Um, and I guess that's the nature of the the organic nature of of, of the funding mix. But um, yeah, it's ETFs generally for the good. Generally for the good. Okay. And no, the- you raise a good point. You raise a good point because ETFs don't participate in in, in uh, secondary offerings of shares. But what will happen is when those ETFs rebalance, they're going to reweight the stock reflecting the higher market cap value. And so they will come and they will buy their pro rata, you know, amount of, of, of shares, but they're not going to be there. That's more on the active side in terms of who's going to be writing those checks. So that you raise a good point about that. I, I'm going to leave it there, John. Um, and like, I appreciate you kind of joining this kind of uranium uncovered week week of ours. Um, we wanted to look at it from all angles for a big new audience that we've we've discovered over the last year here, just sitting back waiting to sort of see what this this whole well metal super cycle more broadly, but specifically uranium um, was going to do. I think they've been on a nice ride with us and and and, and everyone else in the sector and seen seen some gains. Um, so just leave you, if you could leave us with um, just one thought around this topic, which is, has this topped out? Am I too late? Should I be looking elsewhere? Yeah, we. it's a great question. Uh, we've been we've been answering that question for the last couple of weeks uh, with institutional investors, and uh, we remain very constructive on the sector. Uh, I think the biggest challenge uh, that we face is is related to time now that price has improved but price still needs to strengthen I think to to ultimately solve the challenge which is how do we double production primary production of uranium between now and 2040 where we've largely ignored most projects uh, for the greater greater part of 10 years so in our view higher for longer is is definitely going to need to happen. Uh, if we have kind of a, a, a spike and then a return back to sub-economic pricing, uh, the industry is really not going to go anywhere. Um, I, I think people finally do acknowledge the long-term challenge here. And look, if you're running a nuclear power power station, I think you really need to change your mindset that how were you going to remain in business if the price stayed at 30 bucks forever? I mean, really, you were going to run out of fuel at some point. So um, you, the industry needs to reset itself, the balance of power needs to be more more even obviously the the it's been a buyer's market for for 10 of the last 12 years now we're shifting into a seller's market um you know that's how cycles work but we're we're very constructive on the space and and i think the equities are finally gonna finally kind of catch up because the commodity price has raced ahead a little bit we've got a ways to run yet okay i like it john appreciate time see you soon yeah thank you very much good seeing you again